Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so excited that you're tuning in today. Today I'm joined by Matt Boyd, who's the co-owner and president of Healthy Baller. They are a strength and conditioning and physical therapy and overall athlete development center located in Northern Virginia and Rockville, Maryland. And Matt and I are going to be discussing lacrosse today, specifically strength and conditioning for lacrosse athletes. So different considerations you should have in your training, load management, overall goals, and so much more. There's so much valuable insight and information packed into this one, and I know that you're going to love it. So enjoy this episode and be sure to check us out on social media at Braun Body, and be sure to check out Healthy Baller and Matt and his entire team over at healthyballer.com. Enjoy. Matt, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today. Yeah, Dan, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I, I know you've had a great list of uh, different, different, you know, strength coaches and and um, some high level people that have jumped on the podcast. So I'm honored to be here. Definitely, and it's a privilege to be hosting you. And you know, for the people who aren't familiar with you and all the amazing stuff you've done over with the team at Healthy Baller, would you mind kind of filling them in a little bit about who you are and what you've done? Sure, sure. So my name is Matt Boyd. Um, I'm president and co-owner of Healthy Baller. We are a athlete training, um, physical therapy, adult personal training uh, facility and company. We have currently three locations, one in Rockville, Maryland, one in Alexandria, Virginia, and another one in Fairfax, Virginia. That's awesome. And, you know, from your backstory, it sounds like you have a little bit of experience working with basketball players and baseball players, but it looks like now Healthy Baller does a lot of stuff with, it looks like basketball and lacrosse primarily. Yeah. And and we work with athletes of, of all different sports. Um, you know, my, my business partner, Blair Donovan and I both got into industry through basketball and I actually um, met Blair Donovan um, because he was my strength conditioning coach in high school. And that's how I got inspired and, and wanted to pursue this path and um and healthy baller started as as a basketball based idea um and, and it was sort of what blair referred to himself as the healthy baller and wanting to to um you know take care of yourself in in all facets of what makes a healthy athlete uh, but it's evolved into working with all different sports um you know there's performance in everything we do we actually had a couple um dancers in last week we have volleyball we have field hockey um but i think lacrosse just being in the the sort of lacrosse hotbed of dmv um it, it just sort of catered toward wanting more performance training um and there are a lot of similarities between basketball and lacrosse um and so personally i fell into it um and and blair as well as a couple of our other performance coaches fell into it as well. Um, and I think just, just as lacrosse became more competitive and the demand increased, uh, it just, there was an opening. Um, and you know, we had worked with a couple of different athletes, a couple of different teams and they did well, even though we were a tiny, tiny, tiny part of that. Um, you know, they referred us more people and it's kind of grown over the years. Yeah, definitely. And as you mentioned, lacrosse itself is a very growing, evolving sport here in Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, especially. And, you know, that population has a very unique need and skill set. And the sport itself is kind of unique. There's not a whole lot that kind of combines the demands of, I would say, a field sport like soccer or field hockey with a very fast paced, upper body uh, focused sport. Now, I think everyone's familiar with lacrosse, but 
I would have to imagine that most people aren't familiar with the specific demands that go into the sport from an athletic perspective, because as I just mentioned, it's pretty unique. So from your eyes as a strength coach, what unique uh, demands are you looking at for a lacrosse athlete? What kind of things are you considering when you just consider the sport in general? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and there there are a ton of different things to consider. And I think that's where, from a programming standpoint, um, it can be very simple or it can be very challenging because I think you can overanalyze and break things down arguably a little bit too much. Um, and then there's the flip side where maybe you don't check all the boxes you need to check in terms of your training. Uh, so the way I look at it um, is you've got top end speed, you've got acceleration, you've got change of direction. And uh, as with a lot of different sports, you have those three categories, but at different capacities. And so um, in lacrosse, what you see is a lot of explosive movements, usually with, I don't want to say standing rest, but there's plays, there's stoppage in play with, um, you know, foul calls, there's resets, and there's obviously there's a ton of transition so really, it depends on the position, but ultimately, I, the big difference between lacrosse and soccer from a from an energy system development standpoint is it's not fully continuous, right? Um, a lot of us uh, work with lacrosse players will talk about um, the ability to to do repeated sprints, and so having that explosive ability, being able to have a brief period of downtime, recover and repeat is super important. Obviously there's the rotational component. That's a huge part of it. Um, there's the total body strength that's involved from being able to take hits, you know, depending on what level you play, depending on if you play men's or women's, uh, the rules are, are slightly different, but ultimately you have to have the rotational power and stability to shoot, to pass, to, you know, to throw, to check, um, and then you have to be able to handle those on the other side. You have to be able to take a check. Uh, you have to be able to, you know, dodge and and not have, you know, uh, an ACL tear the second you dodge the first time. Um, so there are so many different components that go into the game. And, and like I said before, I do see a lot of similarities in basketball, um, which is why it, it made it a little bit more simple for me as I uh, became working with more lacrosse players. Uh, I initially would, would draw that, you know, back to my basketball days, but then I started observing the game a lot more and, and it, you really have to be a student of, of movement. You have to observe the way they're moving. You have to observe practices, games. Um, and then, uh, from my side, it helped that one of the teams I worked with had, had some wearable sports science. Um, and so I got to see data in terms of, sprints what type of sprints uh distance covered okay how much of that is sprinting how much of it is standing rests um and and uh accelerations and all those different components that help you understand sort of the demand um that these athletes are are under you know when they're playing yeah definitely and i like how you keep bringing up the comparison between lacrosse and basketball because when i was first learning about the sport and treatment methods for the sport uh, the individual talking to me at the time kind of compared uh, defenders in lacrosse to a point guard in basketball. There's going to be a lot of shuffling. There's going to be a lot of side to side movement. And ultimately, they're not going to need to be the ones who are, you know, fighting in the paint per se, but they will need to cover a lot of ground and be able to hold people in check. 
Do you have any other kind of analogies or comparisons that you like for the uh, connection between lacrosse and basketball for people who might be more familiar with basketball than uh, lacrosse? I think a closeout is is very common. Um, and in basketball, um, I would consider a closeout, um, you know, assume the ball is rotating around, you know, the three-point arc and you might be help side defense, you might be close to the lane and you've got to accelerate out toward, you know, a offensive player who's outside the arc. You have to break down your feet in a controlled manner so that you can guard them and they don't just blow by you. Um, lacrosse, that happens all the time. Um, and it's very, this was a, a um, definitely an area where I, there was a big learning gap for me because in women's lacrosse, you can't close out straight up. And that was that that blew my mind because I'm thinking basketball and and I would only close out straight up and I would close out with a hand up. And um, but in, in women's lacrosse, you have to leave shooting space. You have to leave a lane for them to shoot. And if you go into that lane, it's a penalty um, because obviously the danger of getting hit by, by lacrosse ball. And so closing out in women's lacrosse is a completely different movement, but it's still the same concept that you need to essentially you know, face up and guard somebody um, as the ball is rotating. And so that's one that that was very, again, a big connection to basketball. However, the specific movement patterns and um, even the direction of movement, it's almost like a curvilinear run. Um, so you're running almost essentially at an angle, almost like on a, um, on, on a C to close out in lacrosse and in basketball, you'd be running, you know, straight ahead, straight line. Uh, so I thought that was something that, um, again, was, was very similar between lacrosse and basketball from a defensive standpoint. I do think one movement you see more so in lacrosse and not that you don't see in basketball because it's there all the time, but it's a crossover step. And a lot of, you know, we always say contain people within two shuffles or, or you got a crossover crossover run. Uh, we're not seeing people shuffle more than, two times continuously uh, just because it's too slow. And most of the times when they're dodging in lacrosse, they've got some sort of, you know, two to three steps on where they're coming at you. Um, so again, it's similar, but in lacrosse, I, I think from a defensive standpoint that the transitions between shuffling and crossing over happen all the time. Um, and they almost have to be just interchangeable at any time to, to really guard somebody. You also mentioned some unique differences on the male versus female side, such as the shooting lanes. Is there any other like specific male versus female differences you can think of as it relates to lacrosse and the specific demands the sport places on them? I'm not the expert from the <laughs> lacrosse, um, you know, men's and women's rules. Um, but I think off the cuff, I, I mean, the subbing is definitely different. Um, the, depending on the shot clock, that's a big part of it. Um, the transitions are different and, um, I think all those things play into it, but ultimately the energy systems in my mind are the same, right? Um, and it's, it's sprint, repeat, rest, sprint again, uh, tons of change of direction. Um, and I think the change of direction is important to consider in all planes of motion. It's not strictly lateral, um, and I, I think that's one thing that's evolved over time is uh, being able to shuffle, crossover, uh, backpedal, sprint um, with essentially cuts at different angles uh, because it's it's not as simple as, okay, I'm going to 
shuffle laterally and that's it. It's, well, I'm going to shuffle 45 degrees, you know, forward. I'm going to shuffle, you know, 135. I'm going to shuffle 90 degrees back. I've got to rotate my hips. And, and there's just, uh, you really have to be able to guard in all angles around you. Um, so I think that's, that's one thing that's changed a little bit in terms of our training. It might've been a little bit more strictly lateral instead of multi-directional um, years ago. And as you mentioned, going back to those initial three things you mentioned, uh, as far as key demands for a lacrosse player, top end speed, acceleration, and directional change in all planes. You also mentioned about the rotational component and just having a baseline sheer total body strength. I would imagine that having, I would say, higher total body strength would probably give you better stability for the rotational component. And I would also assume that stronger athletes in general would probably be able to run a little bit faster. Is that typically what you see or is there sort of a inverse relation between strength and speed? That's a great question. Um, ultimately, you know, we need to sell our service um, and we need to be able to speak to parents, athletes, coaches, um, et cetera, about what we do. And, and I would say about 95% of you know, everyone I mentioned, parents, athletes, coaches approach us because they want their uh, athlete faster, right? And they might say, well, you know, I, I don't need Johnny to lift. I need Johnny to run faster. And then that's our job to educate them and let them know, you know, okay, well, <laughs> there's a direct correlation between the two. Um, you know, Johnny can get faster with mechanics, but ultimately, if we can get Johnny stronger on one leg, He's going to have a stronger piston to push off of, and that strength is going to correlate to increased speed. Um, and, and so ultimately, it's it's always our job to give our, our clients a marriage of what they want and what we know that they need based on the demands of the sport. And so there is a point at which there's diminishing returns. And I think that's the, the real question is when do you get there? Um, there are certain athletes that we've worked with in the past that you know, love the weight room and just do a ton of extra, you know, strength work on their own. And, you know, we're tracking our athletes, I would say at least four times a year, if not more often, we're, we're getting updated numbers on, you know, five, 10, five on a 10 yard sprint on a flying 10, you know, broad jump, vertical jump. Um, and the main reason we're doing that is really to evaluate the program that we're we're writing for them and to make sure that it's, it's accomplishing some sort of goal that we have based on whatever that training block or training period is. Um, but if we see that there's a point where, Hey, this training is not eliciting the response that we're looking for. Um, it's not creating the adaptation that we want. And some athletes, we might say, look, you know, <laughs> we don't need you to trap our 300 pounds. We'd rather you trap our 200, you know, or 175 and, get some more speed. And, and so that might be changing um, our programming in, in certain ways that might be incorporating more contrast work. Um, it, it obviously depends on the athlete, but the bottom line, there's definitely a point at which there's diminishing returns. And um, most of our athletes, we don't see them hit that point before college. Um, and usually in college, they're, they're mainly with their, their college strength coach. And so we're just trying to do our job to sort of bridge the gaps when they're home. Um, but there have been a few that we have to have that discussion, like, okay, you know, we need to throttle back a little bit on the strength piece and focus a little bit more on the, you know, essentially speed. 
Um, but but it's our job to continually test to make sure that we get um, a good evaluation of the program we're writing and the effect it's having on them. Yeah, I can't echo that point enough, Matt. I totally agree with you. At the end of the day, the program itself is kind of like your experiment. And then you go when you test it, you go back to the lab and say, hey, you know, did this actually give us the results that we're looking for? And as you mentioned, you know, everything we do at the end of the day has a therapeutic window. I like that analogy from pharmacology. Essentially, if we do too much of something, we start to get side effects and we don't get the uh, result that we want. If we don't do enough, we get no adaptation. So we kind of have to find that balance. And just like in pharmaceuticals, we might not get the balance right the first time. It might take us a couple months to rework it and find where our optimal window for adaptation is. But if you're testing it, like you just outlined, then you'll eventually find it. And I, I think it kind of creates the argument that sometimes less is more, right? You know, if strength alone was the only thing we needed, then power lifters would probably be the best lacrosse players. But that's not how it is, right? You know, you don't have athletes, I'm assuming, go in and squat till they drop and then leg press, leg curl, leg extension, hack squat and call it a day. I would imagine you probably combine some strength elements, but you probably add in a little bit more of a athletic background. And I would almost say sports specific element to the training. Again, I totally agree with what you just said. And I think you hit on something that's really important to understand about youth lacrosse specifically, um, and then all, all youth athletics. And it's that, um, these athletes, most of them are borderline overtrained as it is. Uh, most of them are, you know, we, we checked in with some of our high school players this past summer and they had 35 games, some of them, 35 games in the summer coming off of a, you know, 30 game high school season. Um, and then they go into a fall club season and then winter is theoretically preseason. And that's hopefully a lot of them play multiple sports. That's just with lacrosse. And, um, to your point about less is more, you're referring to the strength side. I'm talking about the entirety of performance training, less is more. And I think that is such a tough um, discussion, especially from a standpoint of, again, we're selling our service. Ultimately, our goal is to educate, right? That's really our goal is to educate and to empower our athletes, parents, coaches with knowledge so that they understand um, you know, uh, the holistic approach to training and understand that no matter what we can do as much conditioning as we want. And if you are injured come the first day of your season, none of that matters. Um, and so I think that's a tough discussion, um, in terms of educating our athletes. I mean, every single day, every single session that we have begins with, Hey, how you feeling? What did you have yesterday? What do you have tomorrow? What does the rest of this week look like? Um, and and we've, you know, we've tried to periodize for an entire year and have everything laid out and have it, you know, ebb and flow in perfect ways. And, and then the reality is um, it's, it's, it's a great practice, but there's so many factors that we can't control. And there's, there are so few times where we can really, really, really push our athletes for a consistent like six to eight week block it's almost like okay 
athlete, you know, Johnny's feeling good today. Johnny doesn't have, you know, has a couple days off. Let's push Johnny. Um, okay. Well, Johnny just came off of three games. You know, how can we create our sessions so that Johnny leaves here feeling better and also got some strength work, got some stability work. Um, like that's the hard part is it's almost like triage when they first get there. Okay. What's going on? What are you feeling? Okay. I'm a little bit banged up. And, and I think that's a way that we really try to add value um, is to, again, empower the athletes with knowledge, but it is tough because um, the old school of thought is always more and more and more. Right. And so you really have to um, link yourself up with people who are like-minded and, you know, if you're working with coaches, the coaches have to understand that there's, there needs to be a collaborative effort. And I think that's why we're so lucky to work with the coaches we work with is they appreciate the knowledge that we're giving and um, the amount of planning and organization that goes into the programs we create. And they understand that ultimately we want healthier athletes and we also want faster athletes, but we do, we want that. We want those two goals in those order. We don't want faster athletes first and healthy athletes as a distant secondary goal. Um, and so I think that's the, that's the hard part is uh, getting to the point where those coaches and those athletes really trust you know, the, the knowledge that you're bringing to them. Um, but I do think it's important to understand from a lacrosse standpoint, how difficult it is um, to really find a, a block of time that is truly an off season. There is no off season. And that's just the reality. And, and um, so you need to know that. Otherwise you could, if you don't know that, then you could be contributing to overloading, overtraining, all that stuff. Right. Go, going back to earlier, you mentioned about the energy systems. I mean, if you do too much, you're going to put that person in a terrible state of energy balance and they almost develop a catabolic response to all of the activity. You're just loading them over and over and over again. And eventually that's going to lead to an injury. I don't care if it's a stress fracture or just, you know, something light and easy like a muscle sprain or a ligamentous sprain or a pulled muscle or something that's going to heal pretty quickly. Um, that kind of stuff takes a toll. And as you mentioned, your number one goal is to keep an athlete healthy. Yeah, it'd be great if they get faster and they get stronger. That Those are secondary goals. But ultimately, if an athlete comes to you as a freshman and you can keep them healthy for, throughout the remainder of their high school or college career, they're probably going to be a lot faster than someone who goes in, trains really hard, and then gets injured in a year. And then that whole process resets. Um, I would I would say that the consistency and the slow and steady progress that you build is going to be a lot better in the long run than something that continues to yo-yo up and down due to a perpetual injury cycle. And that's something that we see far too common with lacrosse. I don't have I don't have any statistics pulled up right off the top of my head, but I, I think most of the lacrosse athletes I see. Uh, I treat them due to overuse things like uh, stress fractures in the back or the hip um, or shin splint type stuff. And then occasionally you get the typical field sport, ACL, that kind of stuff. Um, but in general, you can't help but wonder, hey, if we manage the load a little bit better and just kind of reminded ourselves what our actual goal is, how much of that we could have prevented and ultimately how good of an athlete they would be if they didn't have to be sidelined for a prolonged period of time like that. Totally agree. Um, and I think from our standpoint, and we have an incredible um, group of physical therapists that are at um, our facilities and um, all of them have treated ACL. And, and I think 
Dr. Wesley Wang is is one who works with a ton of ACL athletes, and that's kind of been his niche. But all of our um, physical therapists work with ACLs, and I think unfortunately we we do see so many that are lacrosse players, so many that are soccer players. I, I think the one factor that we've seen lately is this that um, a lot of them have have the younger ones had had never been part of a strength training program, had never had their own strength training program. And so um, there obviously is no way to prevent an ACL um, tear. And there's, we can only hope to reduce them. And, you know, we try to do as much as we can by, by collaborating with physical therapy. But um, I think that the strength training piece, you know, beginning it at an appropriate time is so key. And then you mentioned consistency, which, is is that you know i always tell people there's no secret the secret is if there is the secret's consistency and you know even training in season we have a lot of um parents coaches um athletes that are very anti-training in in season and uh, again it it's it's about trust building a relationship educating and then getting to a point where they they see the results of an in-season workout and how you can enter the workout feeling bad, beat up, worn down. You can leave the workout feeling better when, than when you got there. And by the way, you can perform better, you know, your next, next game. Um, and once, once they see that and they buy in, um, we've seen a lot of those athletes essentially make it through the season, feeling better, healthier, and performing well at the end. And the athletes who typically don't train in season, Unfortunately, you'll see whether it's an energy system, whether it's a speed decline throughout the season, and they're just more likely to to essentially burn out um, because, you know, they're, they're again, just being ran into the ground. Um, so I think that the strength training piece is, is so important from that standpoint. Um, and, and like I said, it, it's helped us so much collaborating with um, Dr. Teddy Wilsey, who's in charge of all of our physical therapy and, and his entire staff, because we just consistently um, feed off of each other in terms of performance and physical therapy and, and blending. So uh, now you mentioned about in-season versus out-of-season training. How might your uh, training programs look different for an in-season lacrosse athlete versus an out-of-season lacrosse athlete? Or is there ever really an out-of-season time? As you mentioned before, lacrosse kind of goes year round. Yeah, great question. Um, typically, what, what we do is our, our components, our training system components remain the same. It's just how much time and what exercise selection are we um, utilizing in each of those blocks. And what I mean by that is there's still going to be a power block in our in-season sessions. There's still going to be a power block in our off-season sessions. The two could be completely different. The power block in-season could be upper body focused with lower body, you know, deceleration work. Um, and it, if we're talking about intensive versus extensive jumps, the intensive jumps in season would be minimalized um, versus out of season where you could really hone in on, on trying to get more intensive work. Um, from a speed standpoint, I would argue that, you know, most of our athletes that are in season are getting, a ton of speed work through practice, through games. Um, and so most of our in-season sessions, we're not hitting a ton of speed. Um, we're hitting the minimal effective dose. And I think that all comes down to understanding where you are in that week 
understanding where their games are and understanding whatever movement patterns they haven't been exposed to. Um, we know that of the three that I mentioned, top end speed, change of direction, and acceleration, acceleration is the least likely <clears throat> to create residual soreness. Um, so that might be something that we, you know, try to do a little bit of in-season because we know that their bodies are going to bounce back. Um, obviously reps um, and the length of whatever movement are going to be shorter because they're in season. Um, so I think those are important factors to consider from a energy system development in season. Um, if we're doing something, it's low impact. Um, and it's probably going to be a very short burst just because we know that they're very fatigued, um, as it is. And that's, that's if we're doing it. Um, but ultimately it's, it's based on the individual, how they're feeling or, you know, are they somebody that's, that's playing a ton? Are they somebody that's not playing at all? Um, oftentimes those two get treated the same in practice, right? It might be, Hey, you played the whole game. Uh, Johnny played the whole game and, uh, Jack didn't play at all. Okay. Well, the next day in practice, we're doing conditioning and they're both running the same amount. In my mind, I think if Johnny played the whole game, Johnny needs to have more of a recovery practice. Uh, if Jack didn't play at all, Jack probably needs a condition so that Jack is ready when the time comes that his name is called. Um, so that's that's the the one caveat is we need to be able to cater it to the individual because we could have two or three kids in the same session that are in season, but in season could look totally different for one of them versus you know the other. And to your point, you know, I think load management with something like lacrosse can be very difficult because, you know, if two athletes come to you, say Johnny and Jack come to you and they both say, hey, you know, we went out, we practiced and we were doing shots yesterday. Uh, well, one of them might have shot a bucket of balls and one of them might have shot three buckets of balls. And that becomes a very difficult line to manage from both a PT and a strength and conditioning side is the load management with a sport like lacrosse. I mean, the shot itself is very unique with a extension side bend and rotation combo of the spine. And uh, a lot of times from my end, I've seen poor ability to dissociate um, upper body and lower body in that rotation type pattern. And you end up seeing a lot of lumbar rotation as like a compensation um, so you almost create this element of too much of a shooting type motion can cause a little bit of lower back pain, but it depends on the individual. Again, you know, someone might shoot three buckets of balls and their back feels fine and you can continue to load them where someone else, one bucket of balls might be their load, like top end, I'll say, and they start to get sore and achy and just overall run down. So uh, again, credit to you guys for being able to find creative ways to manage the load because there's a lot of different factors to consider with a sport like lacrosse. Absolutely. And I, I think um, ultimately, it like you mentioned, it's exercise selection and it's understanding the individual. Um, yes, there are certain things that we want all of our athletes to be exposed to. Um, however, and you brought up the the back stiffness, back pain, back discomfort. And that is super common in lacrosse. Um, and so we understand the importance of thoracic mobility. We understand the importance of, um, you know, all the anti-rotation, anti-extension, anti-flexion. Um, and those find their way in our programs regularly. regularly. Um, but we also understand that, you know, it might not be best for these lacrosse players to deadlift. So maybe we're just going to say, Hey, you know what? Um, we're going to 
avoid the deadlift and we're going to address posterior chain in these different ways. Um, and you know, that yes, maybe they want a deadlift and we have to have that discussion, but ultimately again, it comes back to, are they physically able to play? Are they physically able to compete in the sport that brought them to us in the first place, right? Hey, I'm coming to you because I want to get faster or stronger for lacrosse. Okay. Well, my number one, you know, job is I, I cannot get you injured training. Um, and I can't make your situation worse. And so that's where we have to step in and advise them and say, look, I know you want to deadlift today, but your back is already, you know, acting up and, uh, this isn't going to be good. You have practiced the next three days in a row and we're not going to deadlift. We're going to pick these other exercises instead. Um, and I think we've had positive results. And I think that's where the buy-in comes in is those athletes normally feel better and understand that the direct correlation between feeling good and playing good is, uh, is there. And once, once they understand that, then I think they put a little bit more in our hands and, um, ultimately buy into to sort of the programming that we create for them. I love that. And, you know, to your point, you could also just modify what you've been doing, right? So if deadlifts are out for the day, could you do a deadlift variation like a, you know, suitcase deadlift from a box or something? So you're limiting the range, but you're still getting a hinge type pattern. And oh, by the way, you're adding more core stability. Um, so I think at the end of the day, if, you know, an athlete wants to do something, and you know that doing that would not be in their best interest. There's certainly a way to kind of make both uh, parties happy, I would say. Um, you mentioned a few times exercise selection, exercise selection. What's a typical exercise selection for your lacrosse athletes look like? You know, what kind of movements, what kind of exercises? How do you mix in, say, like a general physical prep into your program? Yeah, great question. Um, so typically a, a normal session, we would begin with you know, ground prep, which would be some form of mo mobility. Um, and we're going hip mobility. We're going, um, some sort of ankle mobility. Um, we'll hit hamstrings, groin, quads, hip flexors. And so we'll do mobility first, and then we'll follow that with activation. Um, and we usually vary those exercises based on the group or the individual, and we'll, we'll put in a steady rotation. So those aren't the same exercises every single time. Um, but so we have mobility, we have activation, um, and that'll be our sort of ground prep. And then we'll go into um, sort of like the movement portion of our movement prep. And we'll begin with usually um, some sort of low level extensive plyos. And again, those change. So if it's a linear focus day, you'll have some sort of bilateral, some sort of unilateral, um, uh, again, you know, jump, hop, bound. Again, all those are are mixed in regularly from that point. And again, those are, those are extensive from that point, we'll go into marching, skipping. Um, so we'll get what, again, whether it's linear or lateral, we'll get those in the mix. We'll go into, um, different shuffle variations, different crossover variations. We'll go, if it's a top end speed day, we might do some dribble series. We might do some galloping, um, if it's transition day, we might do, you know, different movement patterns together. And so we start with a movement pattern. We start by introducing the pattern. We then um, sequence the pattern and then we essentially test it, making it reactive. And so whatever the pattern might be, that's sort of the progression that we go through. Um, as we make our way through 
that movement prep portion, we finished with some sort of neuromuscular activation. Um, and that could be something as simple as a, you know, uh, a rap, you know, a snap down, a rapid fire, a sprint. Um, but it could be, you know, from a lateral starting position, it could be, you know, dropping back. So again, all, all those, the, the orientation piece will change, but there's always some sort of neuromuscular activation. Um, <clears throat> from then we go into our, our speed and our power. Again, it, it depends on what our focus for the day is. Um, as I mentioned, top end speed, I mentioned change of direction and I mentioned um, acceleration. And so we have different progressions for each. Um, you know, so if it's an acceleration day, we could do different start variations. You know, it could be a half kneeling side facing start. You know, it could be, um, you know, a base position front facing start. It could be a base position back facing start. Um, you know, and so not only do we dictate what the starting position is, but we dictate what are the, what's the stimulus? Are they reacting to us? Is it visual? Is it tactile? Is it partner reactive? Um, so all those variables change things up for them. Um, top end speed. We, we do a ton of resisted sprinting. We do a ton of flying sprints. We do a ton of curvilinear sprints and variations, um, change of direction, uh, we love the the vector work. So again, I mentioned shuffle, crossover, and transitioning between those and transitioning at different angles. Um, so that kind of gives you a, a rundown of the speed portion. And then power, there's going to be, again, some sort of jump, some sort of throw, some sort of sprint. Um, and, and usually as a fourth, some sort of deceleration, just because we know how important that that is, even if it's just a, you know, a, a low level depth drop or, a, um, you know, again, a snap down and, and hold. So we, we hit those in our, in our power portion. And then we go into our strength, um, our strength. Typically, um, we have usually two blocks, but again, it depends on the athlete, the needs of the athlete, the time of the year. And typically we'll do a, you know, push, pull core and potentially a corrective. Sometimes that changes, but, you know, it could be upper body push, a lower body pull, um, and then some sort of core or dynamic movement. Um, we always, always hit extra work on hamstrings. So we try to hit um, a hip and knee dominant hamstring in every session, just because we know that all of our athletes are quad dominant. Um, and so just to try to attack that posterior chain um, and, you know, our auxiliaries are always sort of like our weak links. And so we get a ton of um, you know, abductors, adductors, hip flexors, um, extensors. And, and again, like I mentioned earlier, anti-rotation, anti-flexion, anti-extension, because we know that, you know, those are not the exercises that they want, but we know those are the exercises that they need to be mixed in, um, into their programming. And then we would finish off with whatever the energy system development is. Um, and that could be high, high, high impact, low impact, you know, recovery is usually something that we, we give our athletes different exercises to do for, you know, essentially their cool down. But um, a lot of times we leave that a little bit more up to them. Gotcha. Gotcha. Can I just say, thank you for saying that you actually train the hip flexors because the amount of times I get people on that are just like, you know what, stretch the hip flexors and it'll be fine. Like, can we please actually strength test them and see if we have to strengthen them? 
Um, I, I love everything you just outlined, Matt, from just an overall system of mobility, activation, specific training, all the way up to specific adaptations through, um, you know, having a goal for each session, um, working on specific accessory movements, such as anti-rotation, anti-extension of the uh, core, especially. Uh, how does your early activation exercises differ from, say, your neuro ed exercises that you uh, mentioned there? Are they similar? Are they starkly different? Good question. Yeah, I would say that they're similar. Um, uh, you know, I think what we do is, and again, we we work with a lot of groups, um, a lot of teams. And so we try to take the needs of the entire group and address them in some way, shape or form. And obviously if it's individual, we can cater exactly to that individual, but our, our goal is, okay, if we've got, you know, 20 guys, um, what are the needs of those 20 guys? We can't hit every single need of every individual guy, but we know that overall, if they're, you know, male lacrosse players that they probably need extra hip mobility. They probably need um, extra, you know, adductor work okay so we might throw some of those into their warm-up and we might depending on how they do with that exercise in the warm-up we may give them the same exercise later um, in their strength block as an auxiliary or we may give them again depending on how they performed a regression or progression um, in that block and so ultimately what we want to do is we want to see those activation exercises progress over time there's certain ones that we know okay like you know, we're not trying to kill them with a minivan. We're not trying to get them like so much stronger on glute activation that they're using a crazy thick band. Ultimately, we're trying to activate the glute. And so we don't overthink it from that standpoint, but we do want to see some sort of progression in their ability to get through these activation exercises or um, again, those those auxiliary exercises. So a lot of times they are similar, Um and what we might do is we might not hit all of them in our activation, but what we'd hit the other ones um, in that auxiliary. And so that's the other way we look at it is, hey, most of our athletes see us twice a week. We've got a checklist. They've got to check every box here at least one time per week. So if I you know, didn't hit hip flexors, that's a problem. I need to get it, right? I need to get it some capacity. Maybe it's a different exercise than I did last week, but I have to get it. Um, and so I think that that's more the way that we look at it, um, just to make sure that we're getting each of those um, categories checked every single week. Yeah, I like that. You have a system of basic movement minimums and you're saying, look, if nothing else, we have to get these in every single week in one of these categories per se. Um, and then as you were mentioning before, too, you do a little bit of work with band resisted sprints uh, for velocity development. And I'm just kind of more curious when you're doing band resisted sprints, what speed are your athletes running at? So we do um, we do band resisted. We do chain. We do sled. Um, we do all of them. And I think the way that we typically use them um, when we do band resisted, I would say a lot of it is technique work. Um, and a lot of it is specifically helping them, um, learn to accelerate at the body angle that we're looking to create. And it's difficult for them to create that on their own. And so a lot of times we'll do band marches, we'll do band, you know, skips, band bounds, and then we'll do a, you know, bound to a sprint. Um, we definitely do more 
chain sprints or sled sprints than we do band sprints. Um, again, I think the band ends up being a teaching tool to understand that, that posture and that position. Um, we also use the wall obviously to, to work on postural, um, components of, of mechanics in terms of, you know, acceleration. But I think we end up using from a sprint standpoint, we probably do chain sprints and sled sprints more than we do band sprints. Those are more so the, uh, the mechanic side. Yeah. Yeah. I love that answer. There's a number of people I keep seeing as I'm scrolling through the internet different times that are doing these band sprints, but they're doing it at such slow speeds that I just kind of watch and I'm just kind of scratching my head. Like, what are we actually developing here when you say we're using band sprints, band sprints to develop speed when we have no velocity? Um, so I like the way you're kind of looking at it as like, hey, this is going to be a technique thing. We have other things to help develop speed. I think that's a very comprehensive look at it. And I think that kind of, you know, accounts for using each tool for what it's best at, I would say. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And then again, that's not to say that anybody who's doing band sprints is wrong. And, and you know, in, in no way am I saying our way of doing things is is the only way or the best way, but that's just how we currently operate. And I think that's um, led to good results for, for our athletes. Yeah. At the end of the day, we said it earlier, you know, numbers are not going to lie. So if you can produce low injury rates and improvement in measurable sports specific things, whether that be a uh, sprint based test or a agility based test or whatever, if you're producing results, then your program works. There's more than one way to skin a cat after all. But as you mentioned, uh, your group has really stood above a number of other ones that I've seen in the uh, DMV area, especially for the results and the outcomes that you have. So I uh, definitely tip my hat to you guys because it seems like you're doing something right. Well, I, I appreciate that. And and honestly, um, the credit really goes to to the staff, the coaches that we have. And, and we have just incredible people, first and foremost. And I think that's that's, in my mind, what what sets us apart from anyone is, is really just the quality of people um, and the passion that our coaches have uh, and obviously the commitment to excellence that they have. But I think that's um, you know, I think what we're really proud of is, is the level of coach uh, that we have across the board and the type of person and individual that that coach is every coach that we have is dynamic. And um, there is no question that they provide value you on so many levels and i think ultimately that's what has allowed us to grow is that we've had such an incredible group of coaches that have come together and bought into you know creating the culture that we have definitely i love that matt as we start to wrap up here do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks in our discussion about you know sports specific strength and conditioning for lacrosse athletes yeah yeah um i, I mean i i think the the old um, kiss rule, you know, keep it simple, stupid is, is, uh, is definitely underrated. Um, I think it's easy to get caught up in what you see on social media and, um, you know, you want everything to be shiny and, and be the latest trend, but ultimately, um, you need to be consistent with your approach and it always comes down to, the you know needs analysis of what your athlete needs and the demands of the sport and i think that's if you're not sure if you train lacrosse players watch lacrosse watch practices watch games um and and if you work with teams communicate with your coach that you work with and 
understand what is their thought process? What is their, you know, off season look like? What is their preseason look like? What is their in season? How demanding are their practices? And, and more importantly, in a, in a overall, you know, um, concept is what do they want? What are they looking for out of your services? Are they looking for you to improve conditioning levels? Are they looking to have their athletes get faster, stronger? Um, and I think having that dialogue with a coach and or a parent is super important so that you can build the relationship, build trust, and ultimately collaborate. Because no matter what, um, if you are operating independently and you are working with a team and you're not communicating with the coach about what you're doing or the coach isn't communicating about what they're doing, the chances are that you are overtraining athletes at some capacity. Um, and that that open line of communication allows you to demonstrate the value that you can provide to a coach and also helps you and the coach provide what's best for the athlete um, or you and the parent provide what's best, best for the athlete. So um, that's my only advice is really, um, again, creating open lines of communication. And that begins with creating, you know, a strong relationship, not only with your athlete, that's obvious, but really with the parent or with the coach just so that you can get to a point where you can advise them and you can make sure that you're not putting your athlete at risk. Um, especially because these lacrosse players, it's hard, um, to not overtrain them. It's hard because they're, they're doing so, so much. And it really takes, um, a collaborative effort to work together so that you can see some adaptation, positive adaptation without overtraining them. Yeah, I, I love that point. You know, collaboration tends to lead to the best results. And when you get physical therapy and strength and conditioning and coaches and parents all on the same page, then, you know, you've covered all your bases as far as I'm concerned, Matt. I, I like that a lot. Uh, for people who want to find out more about you or maybe they want to check out Healthy Baller and all the amazing stuff that you guys are doing over there, where can they find you at? Yeah, so they can check us out on our website, uh, www.healthyballer.com. Our Instagram is healthy underscore baller. Um, and we try to keep both those updated as much as possible. Um, and on the uh, website is my contact information as well. So happy to chat. Um, you know, I, I love that we have so many great um, strength conditioning, you know, performance coaches, physical therapists that are all you know, wanting to better the industry. And I think, you know, I, I thank you for creating podcasts like this, which are really just spreading the knowledge and um, taking the industry up several notches. And so I, uh, a big kudos goes to you. And, and again, thank you so much for, uh, for having me. Matt, it was a pleasure having you on. I really appreciate your time and all the insight and experiences that you've shared with our listeners. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.